You you want to give a, a a old chime or a new chime? New chime. <laughs> Why not? There is a snake in the garden. The garden is my heart. I am walking very slowly and paying close attention. Step by step, like a bucket filling with water, drop by drop. Each snap, twig, and rustled leaf break the peace within. Now welcome back for another episode of Moonlight Transmission sunrise transformation uh, last month we started this exploration of ancestors which uh, explored the concepts of ancestry our relationship to the land and geography and to the past itself which we're gonna dive into more and we also discuss a relationship to our thoughts which become our actions and this idea of ancestral thinking. So we're going to explore today ancestors through a, a more of a historical lens and a much more personal lens. To study our ancestry is a pathway to our heart, an access way into the deep recesses within. By learning about our ancestors, learning of their names and the places on earth where they walked and lived we can deepen our own self-knowledge. By understanding our ancestors, we unite the past and the present, gaining strength from those who walked before us, and resolving karma in our family and ancestral lines. To deepen our awareness, we can explore family genealogy stories which connect us directly to the land, the First Peoples, the history and the world we inhabit today. And we'll also today begin a uh, ongoing discussion, exploration, history of uh, the United States, of the Americas, uh, really before British colonial times. Uh, it's November, it's uh, National Native American Month, and uh, we want to take the time to understand part of the history that uh, we have not been taught uh, here in this country and in many places throughout uh, this hemisphere. And this is a history of the first peoples of this land that first and foremost is one of survival, of resistance, of the continuation of culture. And uh, we look forward to sharing this episode with you all. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoy. Here's another episode of Moonlight Transmission, Sunrise Transformation.
this is a news story from last month, actually. Um, on October 6, 2022, the California Ocean Protection Council voted to provide $3.6 million to support the Tribal Marine Stewards Network. This is a uh, collaboration of five coastal tribes and the state government of California. This is a first in the nation program, um, again, backed with state money. And these tribes will be reclaiming their right to manage coastal land. This includes monitoring salmon, um, the redwood forests around Santa Cruz Mountains, testing for toxins and shellfish, and relying on traditional practices both for the uh, protection of the more than 200 miles of coastland and also education of future generations. And Megan R R Rocha from the council says, it's this is a partnership is monumental it's focused on tribal sovereignty so how do we build a network where, where it provides for collaboration but again it allows each tribe to do it in the way they see fit and respects each tribe's sovereignty and um i think this is very important uh oh i'll take a moment to recognize uh acknowledge the land on which we're on here in maryland the piscataway people the Piscataway people signed their uh, treaty with the state of Maryland in 1666. And uh, like many of the treaties signed by the early settlers with the people who lived on this land and still live on this land, they were guaranteed uh, for eternity rights to fishing, to the water, um, like this, and that um, treaty um, signed with Maryland is still uh, recognized by the District of Columbia. So the local uh, tribes here along parts of the Potomac and Anacostia have fishing rights based on the president of the uh, the treaty signed in, in the 17th century. And um, it's not in our notes here, but I also want to mention that currently the Supreme Court is um, hearing a case. Uh, it's I believe it's called Texas versus Brackeen. The Brackeens are a, a couple. They are a, a, f a couple living in Texas that have uh, been fostering a, uh, a Native American child. Um, and without getting too far deep into it, uh, it's definitely something anyone can look up at the current docket of the Supreme Court. And uh, they are they are deciding if the Indian Child Welfare Act is basically constitutional or if it discriminates based on race. And in brief, the Indian Child Welfare Act was put in place as law to protect um, native culture. Um, Many of us have become familiar with the residential schools in Canada and the mass graves of children that have been uncovered and perhaps not as aware that everything being found in Canada 
exist in the United States. There were residential schools where Indian children were removed from their families, were not allowed to speak their uh, indigenous language, their hair was cut off, and um, the mission of the residential schools in this country was to kill the Indian, save the man. And this led to the death of many, many, uh, likely thousands, tens of thousands of indigenous children. And so in part of the recognition of this in the um, 60s, the Indian Child Welfare Act is passed. And this basically says that uh, if a, there's a native child who is um, in the foster system or up for adoption, that there's special protocol to follow. Um, first being the adoption, uh, the child becomes adopted by a family member. If this is not possible by someone of their tribe. And if this is not possible, uh, basically other Native American tribes have priority over non-Native people. And so the Supreme Court case is determining whether this is unconstitutional because it's basically denying the rights of a non-Native person to adopt a child based on the fact that they're non-Native. And the crux of it is if if the Indian Child Welfare Act, the way this law is being challenged, is not just for one custody, um, but is really to undo tribal sovereignty. And that this is would basically, um, in many ways, delegitimize and finally kind of end the agenda of settler colonialism, which is to remove all right to land by Indian people. So again, this is currently in the Supreme Court. You can Google Supreme Court docket, um, Indian Child Welfare Act. There's a podcast that um, over the last couple of years, it's called This Land. A really wonderful podcast by a, a Cherokee journalist that gives a um, their season two is exploring this Brad Keen's case and again it's currently um, in the docket and season one of this land uh, covered the um, extraordinary Supreme Court case from I believe it was two years ago um, that expanded Indian territory. Um, Basically, half of the state of Oklahoma is Indian territory. And uh, that was uh, also ruled by the Supreme Court a couple years ago. So uh, it's important for us to remember that the original people of this land, uh, despite all efforts, are still here and are continuing to practice uh, their way of life and their spiritual practices and their traditional forms of, of hunting and fishing and living. And also you know, they've evolved with the world and so also functioning judicial systems and executive systems, legislative systems like this. And um, I, they, we want to honor an ancestor who just passed, a, a historian named Stoughton Lind, who passed away two years ago. Uh, he worked with uh, historian Howard Zinn. Many people are aware of Howard Zinn, who kind of created this field of study of populist history. And uh, Lind 
uh, wrote many books. One's called Doing History from the Bottom Up. And he has three key perspectives to guide people in their study of history. And before we share those three key perspectives, we have a question from Kenny about the malleability of history. We'll explore that a little bit and take a little expansive breath and then come back to these uh, three key perspectives to guide our thinking about history and we'll be able to move into our more of the meat of our discussion today. Life is an ever-rolling wheel and every day is the right one. He who recites poem at his death adds frost to snow. Life is like a cloud of mist emerging from mountain cave and death a floating moon in its celestial course. If you think too much about the meaning they may have you bound forever like an ass to a stake. When it comes, just so. When it goes, just so. Both coming and going occur each day. The words I am speaking now, just so. Thirty years and more I work to nullify myself. Now I leap the leap of death. The ground turns up, the sky spins round. The sources tell us that on the day of Musho Josho's death, he summoned the other monks, arranged for his burial service, said his last words, and died sitting upright. Just so. Or thus, Nyozi is a cry used by the Zen master to direct his pupils' attention to things as they are, or to indicate that the student sees clearly. Without particular effort, it is poetry that moves heaven and earth, makes the unseen gods and demons feel sympathy, brings harmony to the relations of man and woman, and softens the hearts of rough warriors. Thus prayer, poetry, and to a certain extent magic has unclear boundaries that all help. I wanted to introduce three things. One, uh, a pioneer in consciousness expansion. Um, two, the method that he created. And three, um, the U.S. government's take on his method of what he was doing. And I want to introduce these three things because based off uh, uh, episode one of Ancestors, I had to question... Um, I was posing to, you know, Sean and myself was, what would one say to a person who doesn't see the malleability of uh, history, meaning the malleability of time itself, uh, based on the proposition that there is no past, there is no future, there's just now and consciousness perspective of it. So I thought to introduce... Um, uh, these three these three um things to uh kind of help uh one to see that you know time is very malleable and the history is not such a fixed idea of what has happened as opposed to uh, a perspective of all possibilities that can happen right now so i wanted to bring up 
um, Robert Malone, who created a process called the Gateway Process. So Robert Monroe, born 1915, died 1995, was a New York radio broadcasting executive and a pioneer in altered consciousness. His research and exploration into human consciousness began in the 1950s. He produced evidence that specific sound patterns have identifiable and beneficial effects on um, one's capabilities. For example, certain combinations of frequencies appear to enhance alertness, others to induce sleep, and still others to evoke expanded states of consciousness. He developed a patented audio technology which he called Hemisync. In 1953, he formed the RAM Enterprises, which is a corporation that produced network radio programs, principally in drama and popular quiz shows. In 1956, the RAM Enterprises created the Research and Development Division to study the effects of sound patterns on human consciousness, such as deep sleep, primarily for the purpose of studying sleep learning uh, modalities. According to Robert Monroe's own account of experimenting on himself, he caused himself to have an out-of-body experience and then went on to become a prominent researcher in the field of human consciousness after that. In 1962, the company moves to Virginia, changes its name to the Monroe Industries, and starts to create cell sales cassette tapes, which include um, the, re the information from the research and development discoveries on human consciousness and how to expand it. Later on, the research and development division of RAM Enterprises was divested as an independent non-profit organization called the Monroe Institute, which focused specifically on the audio process of expanding consciousness with the hemisync process he developed. This institute is still being run today under the leadership of Monroe's daughter with the participation of specialists in psychology, electrical engineering, physics, and education in other areas today with the objective of expanding the Hemisync line of products and their benefits into the markets worldwide. Hemisync is backed by 50 years of research. Now, and Robert Monroe has written a number of books and tons of audio CDs with the, the Hemisync um, format, basically to program yourself during sleep. So, that's Robert Monroe, the creator of Hemisync. What Hemisync is, or the gateway process is also is termed as, this is the way it works. Basically, he uses sound, um, alternating frequencies of hertz frequencies in each ear, where the mind tries to, or the brain, tries to basically find the difference between the hertz that are going into each ear and focuses on that. And once the brain focuses on this difference, both hemispheres of the brain rise in amplitude and energy and become a little bit more uh, in sync with each other where the human is at their most uh, uh, developed in terms of alertness, awareness, taking in information. So he used this basically uh, to program oneself during sleep with things you want to do in life. 
But like I say, he discovered out-of-body experiences uh, were capable of it. Now, what, what, a third thing I want to bring into effect uh, in, into this in, this conversation is the CIA's interest into Robert Monroe's hemisync um, or gateway process. So, in 1981. The U.S., the, U the CIA, Central Intelligence Agency, unclassifies a report that is based on Robert Monroe's uh, discovery. And the report is written by a, a military personnel at Fort Meade in Maryland um, describing whether Robert Monroe's gateway process is in fact works as a mind-expanding uh, modality that can be used. And in this 30-page report, not only is it confirmed by the CIA's own analysis and perspective that it's a mind-expanding consciousness uh, modality that can be used, but it also confirms that one, out-of-body experiences can be had, two, it starts to explain why the gateway process works and the explanation of why it works is uh, is interesting because it basically tears down any notion of a physical world outside of our eyes. It basically starts with the premise that matter and energy, just like uh, Einstein has stated, are one and the same thing. There is nothing physical outside your eyes or out anywhere. Everything is based off just the oscillating currents of uh, energy waves. And with that in effect, it basically starts to explain how physicality of things is just basically a hologram and that the gateway process, just like Kundalini uh, meditation, transcendental meditation, Zen meditation it mentions, and also biofeedback. Both work, and then this is just in terminology of brain um, conversation on how the brain works. Uh, it both works to basically bypass your left analytical side of your brain to go straight to your right side of your brain, which creates reality, mm. and to basically uh, massage and instruct what reality you want to create. So throughout the whole analysis of the gateway process um, in the CIA document, they're basically admitting that um, what all your spiritual doctrines have in, in the past have always said, this is a dreamlike reality. There is no past, there is no future. And that's also stated in the, in the CIA's analysis that... Um, yeah, maybe I, I can read something here from that. This is, this is um, near the end of the, the document in the section of belief system considerations. It says, the classic description of the universal hologram is to be found in a Hindu sutra which says, In the heaven of Indra, there is said to be a network of pearls so arranged that if you look at one, you see all the others reflected in it. And the author says, I have cited this quotation because it shows that the concept of the universe which at least some physicists are now coming to accept is identical in its essential aspects with the one known to the learned elite in selected civilizations and cultures of high attainment in the ancient world. The concept of the cosmic egg, for example, is well known to scholars familiar with the ancient writings of the Eastern religions. 
and uh just to note that they they mentioned this to say that um this insight that they've gained through the gateway process does not refute anyone's spiritual or religious it actually is in line with mm. thank you and 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 to kind of sum up um i thought about you know after reading this document that you know they're basically that this com this juxtaposed to or paired with subatomic physics um M theory and all the sciences are today that are basically saying no the fixed world science view the Newtonian view is definitely not the way things are you know um, there's almost nowhere for a person's consciousness to hide in the notion that w this world is not a fluid alternating constantly changing reality based off you yourself that that takes into account the past is not a fixed solid entity the future is not a fixed solid entity everything is just constantly flowing there is nowhere to hide in thinking that there is something fixed with all the science and um even this that even what the science is, even what your, the U.S. government says. I mean, there's nowhere to think that old way anymore. So I thought to bring that up just to you know, have everyone's mind kind of fluid into um, some of the historical lessons that, um, that you, you, you go over, Sean. So thank you. We, we, we've been, like, uh, holding this, this for a while because you you share information like this it's this was declassified september 10 2003 this uh, document i'm looking at here that was originally written um june 9 1983 again in, in fort meade maryland and um but I, in, in in hearing you explain it now kenny i think i have for myself a little bit of understanding as to how it might relate and um, we can see where we go with this here. Yeah, so um, here we go. So uh, we're going to return here to uh, Stoughton Lind for a moment. Um, and so he has these three key perspectives. These are grounded in uh, history of the United States really as we'll see in as we read number two here. Um, so I'll go ahead and, and share these perspectives and then we maybe discuss them a little before we move on to the, the history of it all. So perspective one, history from below, which is the kind of term that uh, Professor Lind uses. History from below is not or should not be mere description of previously invisible poor and oppressed people. It should challenge mainstream versions of the past. Number two, the United States was founded on crimes against humanity directed at Native Americans and enslaved African Americans. Number three, participants in making history should be regarded not only as sources of facts, but as colleagues in interpreting what happened. And I think it's that last one that really kind of opens us back to this idea of gateways that 
history is not a collection of facts. And, uh, uh, you know, an example of this is um, you can hear two people say the same history, but one history can uh, choose not to tell you some things, can use silence to exclude someone. Or uh, we were talking about the Haitian Revolution before we started here. You know, the Haitian Revolution, one of the reasons we kind of, I mean, we don't learn about it because it's not productive to um, the ethos of thinking that is being cultivated in our education system. But also, Haiti's kind of it sits in history in our minds as a like a one-time thing. Like, it couldn't be replicated. And so, even if you take the time to learn about it, it's, it's, it's firmly stuck back there. It's not like the kind of thing like we can learn about what happened there so then apply it to other places. And so if you approach learning about some time in history from the point of view or from the perspective, from the starting place of, well, this is fine to learn about, but it doesn't really mean anything, then it will be very difficult to find meaning from it. While if you learn about the French Revolution and you learn that, well, the French Revolution started all these other revolutions and inspired all these revolutions, well, naturally, you're learning about that coming from a place of, well, what can I learn from this? So how we, our right-left brain is oriented towards information and stories um, are connected there. And then this other, from point one, it should challenge mainstream versions of the past. We've all heard this, like, history's written by, written by the winners, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever version of that. It's a, it's a version. It's a particular story that's been told from a, uh, a patriarchal point of view, from a, a belief in racial, from a belief in race, right? Like that, just that not in a belief of racial supremacy or, or hierarchy, but just the idea that there is such a thing beyond the human race. Uh, the mainstream version of, of the past that we live within believes that might is right, believes in the power of um, the legal doctrine of uh, manifest destiny, believes in the legal doctrine of terra nullius, which is this idea that the land is empty. And all of these things have been affirmed by the highest courts of this land. And mentioning the Indian Child Welfare Act is basically what is at the foundation of that argument. Do, do Native people have any rights to continue to live the way that they, they wish to? And so these are the mainstream versions of the past. And if we don't open ourselves to with some like curiosity, some imagination, some ability to go into history until you're actually in something more like mythology, then it will be very difficult for us to kind of uh, reconceptualize the world in which we live and like why has all of this happened right so I wanted to um, kind of open in this space of ancestry and genealogy uh, with my own self what I'm seeking what I'm my intention in some way and 
think it will uh, help primarily myself remember some of these things. But also each of these things that I'm sharing were moments where um, my past changed as I learned this thing, when this thing happened. So I have a few like events of my own personal history. And um, it's really been this like long, as long as my life's been, this kind of reality of not being born where my ancestors were born and being born far from my ancestral land has been like a pretty like a, I've, be, I've been constantly in an awareness of that from a young age probably from the age of probably the first time I went to India which was about I was about four years old Is your lineage from northern or southern India? Yeah so um my mother's family comes from uh, what's now Pakistan, which is nor north, uh, west, really, I'll call it India, because when my ancestors lived there, there was no Pakistan. And um, they came to what's now India when, the, when India uh, partition took place, so 1947. That's when my mother's family moved from what's now Pakistan to New Delhi, where my mother mainly grew up but they traveled a bit my father's family came from uh, a place called Lucknow which is in the plains of India but also northern India and I think uh, maybe I'll go, go through a little bit of this and then share uh, this aspect of my father's uh, ancestry uh, because a lot changed for me when I learned about this in terms of this kind of malleability of, of history and identity and identity. My name's Sean Madan Edwin. I spell Sean like an Irish person, S-E-A-N. And the story is my father liked the name John, but he didn't like that Johns would get the nickname Jack. And so I got the Irish version of John, which is Sean. My middle name is Madan, which is my mother's maiden name. And this is a name I'm still learning about. I'm learning what its uh, meaning is, but I understand it to have uh, be related to some line of Brahmins. And that means there's some difficulty in that history, given what the Brahmins have done in terms of creating hierarchy and racial caste, all of this stuff. And my last name's Edwin, which is an English name. Uh, I believe it means good friend of the Lord. And this is uh, how a full-blooded Indian born in America has an Irish name and Indian middle name and English last name. Now, now from a person who doesn't know Indian history, from what I understand, the Brahmins are near the top. The, you could say the Brahmins put themselves on top. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, they believe that they are the head. If, if, if humanity is a body representing the divine, that they are the head. And so they participate in the rites and the ceremonies and the rituals and the prayers that basically keep keep the world going and um, this is a very brief kind of version of that but at some point in time what uh, 
existed as a kind of egalitarian caste became a hierarchical caste and the Brahmins put themselves on, on top and uh, continue to remain in that place uh, really through a kind of white supremacy that they have, their own conception of, of Aryan race, pure blood, a lot of the same language that was codified here in this land around the justification for racial separation, about the need to, um, you know, create boundaries over uh, sexual activity between peoples and races and who can do what to like this. This all existed for a long time in India. And again, the Brahmins found themselves on top. I also grew up in a household. My father was Christian. And my mother, she always put it, was a non-practicing Hindu. She said, God's my religion. She would come to church with us. She didn't take communion. And um, this was definitely a part of my reality. As I grew up in this household, we went to church every Sunday, holidays, etc. When I went to India, we would go to the church my father went to. It's the oldest church in New Delhi, St. James Church. But you know, there was always this recognition within our family house that um, of acceptance because, our, of course, our mother is is coming from it from a different perspective. But probably the most kind of defining reality of my life growing up was my battle with asthma and allergies. I was 18 months old when I had my first asthma attack. I was riding on a lawnmower with my dad and all the the grass clippings, etc. And I, I was probably about six or so. My older brother, we were like roasting chestnuts like Christmas time. And he was like, just put your head back and close your eyes and eat it because I didn't want to eat these things. We didn't know I was allergic, right? And so he's like, hey, stop, get over it. He's my older brother, you know? So I did it. I got sick. I think I threw up that time. And then in middle school, I got allergy tested and then I got allergy shots. I took allergy shots for like six years. Every week I had to go get shots. And then when I went to college, for f like for college and just after college for f I think five straight years, I ended up eating something that I had to go to the hospital because I would go into anaphylactic shock. And strange experiences like one time I ate pizza and it was a Thai pizza. They put a peanut sauce on it. <laughs> um, so anyways, I, I, you know, this is something that was, uh, I was confronted with death in my own body many times. My throat would close up, my body, my anaphylactic shock, your body shuts down spasms to the point of you can't breathe. And it's really a fear reaction. It's a psychological phenomenon, which I realized as I got older. And also what I got, I le learned about my asthma and allergies as I healed them through, you know, learning about myself, learning about, uh, things that I hadn't examined within myself. Psychological? I think psychological, the, uh, emotional. Events you went through in the past or something? Yes, but also karmic, right? So things that had been passed to me. You know, it was a question I always had. Like, I was allergic to things that if I was born in India, I would have been eating from being a baby. Like, I, I couldn't eat lentils and legumes and things like this. So it was a peanut nut allergy, but it had like a lot of things that I couldn't connect to that. And then also my older brother, younger brother, they didn't have any asthma allergies. It's like, well, I always from a young age knew it's like there's something like um, 
not understanding and really can't understand from the Western paradigm. Going back to the gateway process is something. And what I came to learn about asthma, allergies, asthma in particular, is I think of it like a black film over your heart, like over your lungs and heart. And it's like this smog. And um, in kind of emotional language, it's about unexpressed grief and sadness. And so when I talk about karmic understanding of that, I don't just mean like, okay, my parents lived far from home. They left their home, right? So there were things that happened as a result of that about not being with their family, brothers, sisters, parents, as they uh, passed, as they had milestones in their life. We would visit, but they weren't with their family in a daily kind of routine. And so there's some sadness that maybe came from this. But also... There's a huge sadness and grief in, I believe, all Indian people and all Pakistani people, which has to do with the partition of India. And so this... Is the partition of India the separation of Pakistan? Yes. So when the British left India, they carved up India. Actually, they carved up India into India, into East and West Pakistan. What's now Bangladesh was East Pakistan. They became Bangladesh in 1971 after a war. The Kingdom of Kashmir, which is still the most heavily militarized zone in the world, was created at that time. But there were also why, why is that because particular? well, because there were also about 600 other independent states carved up because India at the time was a bunch of like chieftains, and so they there was no singular identity of India. And so Kashmir is the most mineral-rich area in the world. It's incredibly crucial as a a kind of military strategic location. And the people of Kashmir do not identify as Indian or as Pakistani. They identify as Kashmiri. And so they want to be their own country. And um, this, this, all this separation, all this trauma, all this division of people who formerly lived as neighbors with one another, who formerly Hindus and Muslims would live together next to each other. All of this ended when the British left because they politicized religion. So this all lives in us, in in Indian people and myself. So when I talk about unexpressed grief and sadness, I understand that this division of religion in our world is part of my work because I I, I lived in a house where... It wasn't. Didn't. It didn't matter that my mom wasn't a Christian. My dad didn't try to get my mother to convert. That doesn't exist in the concept that I. So, this is kind of the tolerance of all faiths that um, is part of the teachings. So then, the the other kind of two experience I want to share is. Um, one of the people have talked about, Thich Nhat Hanh, dear Thai, who uh, passed away this past January, made his continuation, his transition. Um, I had a chance to uh, attend a five-day, mainly silent meditation retreat in Estes Park in Colorado. And this was in 2009, thereabouts. There were about 900 people there. It wasn't like an intimate affair. He had many monastics there, but very beautiful, profound experience for myself. 
And we would have these Dharma circles where he would give Dharma talks and then you'd go into different groups, same group for all five days. And people would just share about their practice or about Thai's teachings. And one day, the last day, the monastic, I mainly listened. I was really practicing silence there. And um, I didn't share much in those circles. But we had the same monk who was there every time. And she said, the last day, she said, one thing we do is we give Dharma names to anyone who would like. So it's something, we'll go in a circle, and if you would like to be given a Dharma name, um, you just ask, and then that will be kind of shared. And so I asked for this, and the language that was given to me to describe myself is my Dharma name was Peacemaker of the Heart. And I didn't like this so much. <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't you like it? Was it well, you know, too, was it too, too what? Uh, too generic? That's not really distinct. <laughs> no, it's more like it's like I know I'm not that. <laughs> it's like an expectation that landed in that moment okay. and it, it hit close to home because um, my father um, uh, and my paternal line suffers from heart failure my father had a heart attack when he was 52 so the fact that something was said about the heart really was like I really felt it in that moment and then the, uh, so that was an experience I had where um, this kind of, well, I, I really believe this conversation we're having now started um, in those experiences there in Colorado. And before this experience with Thich Nhat Hanh, I took, I had been to India a number of times with family and actually had been there on my own when I was in college. But when I was 29, so 2010, 12, I went to India for five months. And um, I had a one-way ticket, took a sabbatical from work, which I didn't really return to, and spent about six weeks with family in the north of India, and then got on many trains and buses and ended up traveling all the way to the southern point of India, eventually returned north, went to the Himalayan mountains. About half of the trip in total I spent on my own essentially backpacking around India and half the trip with various families, some who I had never met, my dad's cousin and um, I went to the two of the pilgrimage sites of the Buddha where he was and became enlightened and where he gave his first sermon in a place called Sarnath. But when I got to the southern point of India, about halfway through my trip, I went to a place called Kanye Kumari. And as I was traveling down through the southern part of India, I found myself reading the, the sermons and speeches and lectures of the last year of Dr. King's life. Basically from when he gave his Beyond Vietnam speech, which we shared a couple episodes ago. And... I got to Kanye Kumari to the southern point, and I later found out this is the place where Swami Vivekananda uh, arrived before he received his mission and before he came to the United States. And so I had in this place of Kanye Kumari this, um, what I often refer to in these uh, sharings, the transmission and transformation experience. And... Uh, 
in a kind of in a phrase, I call this the peace of spirit. And it's a historical thread narrative uh, that uh, places uh, nonviolence in a historical context. Uh, we normally think about historical periods uh, through uh, moments of violence. So in, in, in college, when undergraduate, I studied history. I learned about this idea of the long 19th century and the short 20th century. The long 19th century being basically the French Revolution to the outbreak of World War I, which is 125 years, give or take. And the 20th century is considered from World War I to the end of, to the fall of the Berlin Wall. And so this is kind of around 70 years we're talking about. And um, through my own research, but also my life experience, this idea of the peace of spirit, uh, the modern history of nonviolence, is the idea of the long century of peace. And it's a, it's a bit of a paradox because it begins September 11th, 1893, which is when Swami Vivekananda arrived in America and gave his first uh, address. And this period of century, long century of peace, ends on September 11, 2001, which was the premier date of this podcast and um, is a date in history that has uh, some of very amazing events, September 11th. And so to expand our understanding and to make the past malleable and to even change the meaning of an event like September 11th for Americans to understand what were the historical um, events that led to that tragic day. And um, I want to make clear, I believe it's a tragic day, but I believe also that in that tragedy there's uh, meaning and there's the possibility of, of, of life renewing forces to come out of that tragedy. And so I have this phrase here called the depth of roots in response to a question I pose myself of what is my intention? Why am I sharing this? It's been kind of, Kenny was saying earlier, I'm always saying this is the new beginning, this is a new first episode, and uh, maybe we should always have that, be gifted with this beginner's mind. <laughs> but this, it's really, I say that because of this idea, what's my intention? And I wrote this phrase, the depth of roots. You know, I really want to understand for myself, first and foremost, my ancestors. I want to understand uh, the foods they ate. I want to understand the uh, uh, geographies uh, that they experience, the land. I want to understand the events that they, uh, you know, maybe were simply witnesses of or adjacent to. And I want to um, understand the universality of my family's experience of being really far from our home, but uh, here with a purpose and here, here with a mission for um, helping uh, and this new world be birthed. And so I do that through a number of forums, through primarily right now this podcast, but also uh, I was lucky enough to 
learned music from a young age. And so music's definitely uh, one of the ways to explore um, the intuitive side of things in the, the left hemisphere, like we were talking about. And um, through study of history, through study of my family. And um, Kenny, I think that's what I have to share there before we go into the uh, the biography that moves into history, that moves into the mythology. Uh, really quickly, in reference to the asthma um, history that you had brought up, since I have asthma too, I'm always curious to hear someone else's perspective and experience with their asthma and their thoughts. Um, when you thought of your comic connection with your asthma condition and your separation from um, your homeland, India, um, was there anything that turned your asthma around from your realizations and oh, yeah. contemplations of everything? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so the first, the first, there were two experiences. Um, the first, I was, I was in, um, I was in Brazil. I was at a, a two plus week long spiritual retreat. And I stayed in this community for a few days after the group that I traveled to to join with there. And I, I cannot explain to you why the whys of all of this, but I can tell you what happened. I woke up that morning after everyone had left and I really wanted to eat some peanuts. And strangely enough, in the room I was in, there was a plastic container of peanut butter. And I went and I tried to open it. And I, for some reason, I couldn't get the top off. And so then I thought better of it. <laughs> and I went out that day. I was, living, I, was, I was visiting this community. And I went and kind of worked in the fields and helped out. And then I went to someone who was provi providing lunch for myself and some other folks. And they got black beans and rice and yummy food and this cabbage cooked in a peanut sauce. And I asked, what is this? Cabbage cooked in peanut sauce. And I put some on my plate. I sit down, say prayer, and I don't eat the beans or the rice. I take the bite of cabbage, and I go, what did I just do? I can feel immediately I'm having a reaction. None of, no one there knows I'm allergic to peanuts. Nobody knows I just ate something that Every other time I've done, I've had, by mistake, peanut, no, I've had to go to the hospital. And I'm in a um, kind of rural setting. There's not a hospital available. So I excuse myself. I go sit outside. I've got this view of this beautiful mountain. And I'm breathing. And then I realize in this moment, I'm kind of in a, like, just keep breathing. Like, that's the whole game. <laughs> and then I realize, oh, my breath is fine. My lungs are fine. There was no wheezing. There was no distress. I was like, well, I know what I ate and I don't feel good. But if I can breathe, it's fine. It's just. And then in that, after that moment, I was able to feel, I felt really ill. I felt something in my gut, like almost wanted to make me like double over. And I said like all in my back, like a, like a very fluey, like, like body aches. And I, I was experiencing what my body was always processing when I was younger and I would have these reactions. And then later that day, I went for a, 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 like a prayer ceremony, lasted about two hours. And when I came out, I wasn't having any reaction. So this was the first clue. 
But the second clue that um, gave me some insight on the psychological aspect of this is I was living with some folks at the time and they had made this chutney. I ate. And as soon as I eat it, the person who I'm living with is, oh, no, I put all walnuts in there. And knowing that I was allergic and hadn't, you know, oversight to say something, but also I didn't ask, which is my responsibility. And so my my I'm having a reaction this time, though, my my respiratory system does not like this. And I um, at this point was re- very resistant to any kind of Western medicine because I'd taken those allergy shots all those years. And yeah, where did that get you? <laughs> I, I, knew, I mean, I took them too for six years. So that's why I laugh. Yeah, where no, did that get you? No, it didn't get me anyway. As I said, after I stopped taking them for five years, every year I'm having reactions. It's <laughs> like, what did these do? So I'm, have this, I'm having this reaction and this walnut reaction. And I find myself basically sitting in meditation. And I'm like, I keep breathing. And I'm doing this for like 20 minutes. Like I can't really breathe properly, but it's all under control. I trust myself enough in this moment. And then, um, you know, there's a Buddhist idea of like thought formations, right? Mental formations. And the way I describe this and will now is I was in this kind of meditation and I saw like from my, the, the I saw rise up in my consciousness, this mental formation, this like thought pattern of fear. What did it look like? It was just sharp and edgy or something? No, it was more like, it wasn't in itself like um, aggressive. It was like almost a bubble. It was just like, it was like, you've been afraid of this before. And I saw it. I could see it in my eyes recording in a kind of meditation experience. And I saw it, and it was rising up. And I believe in this moment that if I just let it continue, if I continued to breathe, it would have rised up and been released. And instead, what happened as it came up in my consciousness, my ego mind grabbed onto it. And within about 20 seconds, my throat closed up. And this is when I understood the psychosomatic relation and really that it's about the my my... As soon as I grabbed onto that fear, my body panicked. I had to go to the hospital. I had to get ep- epinephrine shot. I had to get steroids, Benadryl, IV, all of this. Since that moment, and one other, which I won't share at this time for time's sake, where I got some body work done and I had a big like actual release, I've mainly not had any reactions of any, time, any type, and the fear is gone. When I have eaten something that has been right, the fear's gone. I don't mm-hmm. even think twice. I just know what I need to do to keep myself from going into that state. Yeah. And I make sure the people around me understand, like, if I'm having, if I tell you I ate something, I need you to stay calm. When you start panicking, that makes it harder for me to, so I want to tell you because I, I want you to know what's going on with me. So if I say I need this or that, I can get the help I need. But the first thing is, if I'm going to tell you, you don't worry, <laughs> get out of here, you know. <laughs> you got something else with all that? Well, well, since you asked, um, so I have asthma too, and I had exact, um, I had similar experiences, two similar experiences. One was uh, just like yours, it was at a spiritual retreat, it was a Zen Buddhist uh, 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 meditation, 
Center in Catskills, New York. So it was on a reserve, a forest reserve, uh, so many feet up a mountain. And it was a silent meditation that week. And about two days into it, I realized, uh-oh, I can't, I can't stay here. The incense in this place mm. are choking me. And I just went into full-fledged asthma attack about day two, the end of day two. And I had to even stop going, participate in the meditations, which was that's what the whole retreat was about, meditating at four in the morning, noon, six, not eight. And I had to stop. And um, the thing is, since we were on a forest reserve <laughs> up the mountain, I was told, well, no one here has a car. And the locals, they don't check up on us except on Wednesdays. And we just pass Wednesday. <laughs> So I'm afraid you have to stay. And uh, so I ended up um, staying in the one room that I can somewhat breathe a little bit better than every room in, which was the library and um, on the top floor. And what happened was, so I, I, I slept in there in the library. And what happened was um, they stopped burning the incense, but it didn't matter because they had been burning incense for like 40 years. Mm -hmm. So it was just in the walls, you know? And... Uh, I was basically the way you said it was. I know I'm in a jam. I know I'm in. A, I know I'm having an issue. I know I'm. You know, you ate something that you don't normally should eat, and I put my my lungs in a place I don't normally put my lungs in a place full of smoke, and it was just like, but wait. And I had a horrible. No, I was actually having a horrible asthma attack. I mean, the wheezing was extremely pronounced. The chest was extremely tight. It was just like. DEFCON 5. However, I would have been at a hospital by this time, but there was no going to the hospital, so what am I going to do? All I could realize was, wait, I haven't croaked. I'm still here. And there would be little moments where, like, I had a thought that, let me go outside, get some fresh air. I go outside for Let me jog. So in the middle of an asthma attack, and I mean the worst, like the ones where you are taken to the hospital, they give you the nebulizer, you calm down, blah, blah. That's when I got my relief. Because I remember back in um, sophomore in high school that I was running around the track, sophomore in college, I was running around the track doing a lap, and I had an asthma flare up. And I said to myself, wait, just keep running. And it blew it right past it. And I took that mentality that I'm like, well, I'm in the middle of a full-fledged asthma attack for a whole week. Let me go outside and jog. While I jogged, I was fine. Fire in the sky, feeding all life. Fire in your mind, seeking all knowledge. Fire in the earth, warming the cold ground beneath your feet. Fire in your heart will purify your soul. Fire in your body brings health to your bones. Bring fire to your life to light this dark world. I would say like really just the last like three years, four years, um, I've definitely 
taking the time to uh, recover what's uh, been left by my my uh, elders and to begin to understand uh, my ancestors. Um, I've been aided by uh, you know, family stories from my aunts and uncles and my mother and and um, and my cousins among my cousins or brothers um, of you know our shared memories of peoples or places or stories that we remember our parents telling us and uh, m- my father uh, left a, a family tree of his family um, and you know, documents in that. Um, there was in 1857 a, a mutiny in India, a rebellion against the British, and uh, many, maybe a hundred thousand Indians were killed as a result of this um, violence. And it's also around the time 1857 that uh, really, like, the British began converting, or people became begin converting to Christianity uh, within India. And um, my family entered this historical process. Uh, my father's family, uh, my great-great-grandfather was a seven-year-old uh, boy named Yusuf Ali. And his family was butchered in the violence near Agra, India, where the Taj Mahal is. And he was picked up by uh, Christian missionaries from a place called St. Stephen's Church. And in, this was in 1857. And in 1873, in January, uh, this now man named Yusuf Ali was married to a, a woman with a Hindu name. And their firstborn child was uh, given the last name Joseph. And so a man named Yusuf Ali uh, became, gave uh, became the patriarch of a family of Josephs. And the firstborn male of this line's name was Emmanuel, Emmanuel Joseph. And uh, the fourthborn was uh, Martha Joseph, who is my great-grandmother. And so I share this story, and this is the story I mentioned at the beginning when I was sharing my name, in that um, just by understanding this much of how did this Christian experience take place, um, I'm entering myself into history. I, I, I had to understand that I had to learn about the mutiny of India. I did not learn about that at any point in academic study. And um, it also connected me to a whole lineage of Islam which as a Christian with a, in a Hindu-Christian household, um, Islam's not something I had a relationship with. But now I can see that my family has been Christian for about 150 years. And this is when I talk about going into your history, your own ancestry, until it becomes mythology. All I know is that Yusuf Ali was a Muslim. I don't know when he became a Muslim. But the Islam came to India in the seventh century. So perhaps my family was Muslim for 900 some years. And so how can I really like believe 
what people say in this country from this kind of crusade perspective about the violence of Islam. Which is not to say that violence doesn't come out of Islam any more than it comes out of anything that, that man gets its hands on. So, um, you know, this, is, this was a long part of my, my journey. I, I mentioned the last three years, but really I've been learning about this every time I went to India, every time I took time to read a history of, of the peoples of that land or to study yoga philosophy or to do yoga. I'm connecting with my ancestors. And um, this study has, uh, you know, I've had to reckon it with this land because I'm no longer living on my ancestors' land. So to reckon and to understand my place in it is to understand my family today. And um, so we're going to go back to, to do that. We're going to go back about 1,200 years. We'll start about this time of 1,000. Last time we spoke, Kenny, we talked about this canal and the Indian trails. Have you had any thoughts about the Indian Trail since we last spoke? <laughs> no, no, just uh, interest in reading more into it. The, the 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 economic system was something like the all the interconnectedness of the of the different trails connecting to different peoples, right? Mm -hmm. So, and we mentioned this Mississippian culture at that time. So, the Mississippian culture is um, very important. They, they was the culture, it was the, the civilization, let's use that word, because even though it didn't take the forms of imperialist civilization, uh, it was the organization of civil life uh, through a large geography and a culture that grew out of that. And so we may use the dates like 950 Common Era to 1350, so just up to the time about a century before Columbus and Europeans arrive. And the Mississippian culture is, takes place in southeastern all the way into the Midwest of the United States. And this land area, where if we're going back from present days, you know, the states of Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, up into Kentucky, the Carolinas, like this, Louisiana, Florida, and um, if you go back further into time, this is one of the seven kind of definitive places where agriculture is so-called invented. We, we're taught of the uh, Fertile Crescent, right? The Mesopotamian culture. Well, the Yellow River civilization of China, uh, of course, the Nile, and Nile not being northern Egypt, but really Nile being into the interior of Africa like Sudan, Ethiopia, like this. The, the, the Mesopotamian culture certainly uh, include the fertile, uh, the fertile Crescent. But there's three other sites in, in the Western Hemisphere, and that's the you know, Andes, mountains, Peru, uh, Mexico, and the, the third being this area we're talking about, modern days, the southern United States. This is where agriculture has been cultivated for a very long time. And um, really, this culture is the most developed, advanced, um, complex political social system north of Mexico. 
It's a major culture that we never learn. We hear about the Mayans and Incas, before that the Aztecs, probably not the Olmecs. Most people don't learn about the Olmecs. And even less people learn about this thing called the Mississippian culture, Cuyahokia mounds. You know, and this was, the, the humanity had a relationship with this land. It was, it was a decentralized, more non-hierarchical society. And so that's why we, we place it in this strange category called prehistory that is used to define time periods. But we're talking about, here's, here's some of the agriculture that we're talking about. Slash and burn agriculture, you know, the use of fire management to cultivate uh, natural food forest. Irrigation systems, like we talked about last time, not only with canal, but also irrigation. Uh, tropical ecosystem management systems, how to use the, um, the water as a source, like to build land on top of water, so the food's there. Terraced fields, when I was in Peru, uh, on the way from Machu Picchu, uh, on the way to Machu Picchu, you pass through the Sacred Valley, and there's this thing. It looks like an amphitheater, you know, like all these. It wasn't an amphitheater; it was an agriculture lab. That the levels of the terrace mimic elevations of the mountains, so they could test different varieties of crops in this contained area, and then know in this part of the mountain, in this, you know, microclimate this crop of potato will grow, for example. And uh, the use of foot plows and hoes, animal fertilizer, um, processed human fertilizer, so really being able to use everything at hand. And, you know, many foods that we eat. And these are, or, these are foods originated in the Americas and then taken to other parts of the world. So we might associate them with another part of the world, but if you go back, we're talking about thousands of years, they actually originate here. Uh, corn, avocado, potatoes, potato, potato, squash, amaranth, all kinds of beans, coca, cassava, papaya, peanuts, quinoa, pepper, You're cotton. You're the Mississippi area? The Mississippi, Mississippi culture? Mississippi and cultures cultivating all this. Okay. Pineapple, tomato, tobacco, sunflower. So throughout the Americas also, to your question, yes, but also throughout the Americas, this vast variety of food. And then, um, again, we're talking about history, so we're talking about geography, and we're talking about culture as well. So um, without getting too far into it in this moment, we're talking about matrilineal, matriarchy, matrilocal, that the line of hereditary... Um, connection, identity is through the mother, matrilineal, that the power of the group rests in the, in the women, the matriarchy, and matrilocal defines the, the kind of home base for the most basic unit of society, which is the family. Matrilocal meaning if you are a man and you marry, you move in with, the, with your wife's family. And so the, the, the wife doesn't leave home. And so now you have a continuous connection of culture to transmit through, through time. And to continue if you happen to need to leave the land that you've been cultivating, which ends up happening. If, you, if you're displaced from your land, you can retain your, your culture even in a new land, even though your culture grew out of the land. You see what I'm saying? 
the culture, the identity grows out of a relationship with the land. Yet because the culture has this matrilineal, mat- matriarchal, matrilocal dynamic, that if you, if you are removed from the land, you can retain your culture. And in a brief way, I believe that's how Native peoples have survived genocide and displacement and how um, peoples who immigrate continue to live within some cultural context. Right? It's often, like in my experience, I didn't grow up in a house where we did Indian rituals or things like this, as I've explained, but it's often the mother or often the grandmother who comes to live with the first-generation immigrants who keeps the, the prayers going in the, in the new land, that the culture passes to the next generation because there's a prayer room in the back because that's grandma's living. It's an intergenerational house, right? So, and this, of course, is the history of uh, the survival of, of black culture, of African-American culture, is through the church, the structure of the church, and really through the elders of the woman. The civil rights movement, if we were telling the proper history of it, we would be talking a lot more about the women involved and the, the way they, they often pave the way for then the men to be in the spotlight. The most basic example, like Rosa Parks starts the thing, and Dr. King is awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Okay, so why are we talking about this? Because I, I thought we were going to talk about family, personal relations. So um, with, with her permission, which I, I got, I shared a little bit about my wonderful wife, um, whose family is uh, from Jamaica, her grandmother, ancestor, grandma Olga, um, from Jamaica, and her father's family is like connected uh, to Detroit, Ohio, Kentucky, Alabama, like this, in the the kind of... mm, mapping of the Great Migration, many people from Alabama that they went to the, these areas. Um, and so um, she's been learning about trying to understand, get more names, um, find places, and she uncovered some information about um, part of her family, uh, which connects to what we're talking about. So in brief, she found a uh, some of her ancestral names connected to the Mims Plantation. Now, the Mims Plantation is in modern-day Perry County, Alabama, which is so interesting. It's just like, it, I don't know if Montgomery, Alabama is in Perry County. It might be the neighboring, but it's right around Birmingham and Montgomery. It's Perry County, central Alabama like this. Perry County is one of 40 counties in the United States today without broadband internet access. So I think this would be a way to say one of the poorest um, places in the... And, you know, Jackson, uh, that that's in Alabama. Jackson, Mississippi, uh, has been... They haven't had clean water for uh, uh, months and months now. The city government's been distributing water. I, many people don't know this. It's not something that's been covered in the news. And Perry County is where the Mims Plantation is. And so we find this name, Mims Plantation, we start doing research. 
And I, what, I'm, what I'm sharing right now all, is also part of the process for how in the study of one's own personal history, ancestry, um, you can enter into history and you can start relearning history through you know, the clues that you find. And often these clues are found in pictures. Often they're found in a name like this. So we find Mims Plantation and we find that the Mims Plantation is related to the Creek Indians. And at this point, which was a few months ago, I had known about the Creek Indians. I'd heard about them, but didn't really know anything. And um, in some ways, the Mississippian culture is like the earliest starting point for the Creek people. And the, the Creeks... in a historical sense, are known as the five nations, the five so-called civilized tribes. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of starting there because I believe there are many who have heard, at least, of the five civilized tribes of the five nations. And these are the Cherokee, the Creek, the Chickasaw, the Choctaw and the Seminole Indians. And these are the these are tribes that are living in the southeast United States, where the Confederacy ends up being, where the southern you know, where the cotton grows, where where plantation slavery. The the, the native people here are the, the Creeks. I just found my settler colonialism note. And so we talked about the Mississippian culture. This is 950 to 1350. And now, because we found out about the Creek Indians in my family, we're trying to bridge a gap, right? We're trying to go from about the late 19th century, but fill in the gap. Because if you just, if you just go with the story, the mainstream version of the story, it's basically the you know, these Indians were removed. There's something called the Trail of Tears. And we don't even get a before or we don't even get an after. We don't get what a happened after they were moved out there. And we don't even get the real story, understand why or how. So we'll try to fill in not all the detail of it because this is the, the really understanding the family history of it all. But a brief kind of historical walk through to, to understand some of the moving pieces. So about 1400, so again, still before any Europeans are, are coming in any meaningful way, there's a number of large, like, chiefdoms throughout the southeast. And these are going through this upheaval process. So it seems that in the 14th century, so 1300s, maybe even the 13th century before that, there begins this period of upheaval in society, in the Mississippian culture. Maybe it was due to some change in culture or in climate. Um, we do know that there is this process of collapse and reorganization, which is the rule of human history. This is what happens. But the result is that by the time the Spanish arrive, and this is in the 1500s, they're coming upon people who are already going through upheaval and this process.
and they are working these these are political alliances that break and form throughout this area and one of the um languages is called the alabama language muskego muskogee language so many languages these peoples are eventually called the creek people and they, they, they gained the name Creek people in like the 1700s, right? But they're living there, all these different groups of people, making new alliances with people, determining new hunting areas, territories, migration patterns. All of this is taking place. Eventually, the English call them the Creeks because they live on the Creek. And then the traders come in and they call all of them Creek. So I'm saying all this because Creek is basically a word that the colonizer put in to describe a whole swath of people who had language similarities but were distinct and sovereign, right? But again, these so-called Creek, soon to be called Creek Indians, this is the highest level of political organization in North America, north of Mexico. They built, the, this is where, the, these are the mounds, right? We talked about the mound building, so this is part of their process. So these are, they, work, they know how to work together, they're building canals, they have trails, they're people, they're human beings living on earth. And many of what we know about these people are documented, eyewitness accounts, 16th century Spanish explorers. What's the significance of the mounds again? And what were their heights? Because um, I'm just faintly remember people whenever they brought up. I think there's somewhat reference with like the pyramids of Egypt. And yeah, so they some of them, some of them seem to serve the purpose of a kind of a ceremonial. So the the pyramid, like the ones in in Giza, but with a flat top. So it's like there's a it's like a big platform. Um, other times it may have been uh, strategic, right? If you've got the height advantage, it's harder to be attacked. Um, and otherwise, like gathering spaces. But um, many, there's many mounds that are hiding in plain sight, from what I can understand. And one of these chiefdoms, Upper Tennessee, Eastern Tennessee, and East Central Alabama, by the way, much of this information is from the New Georgia Encyclopedia. This is on the state website of Georgia. It's state websites, state encyclopedias, great resources, because they give a lot of this history. This is from Georgia, georgiaencyclopedia.org. Late prehistoric, early historic chiefdoms, circa 1300 to 1850. And the, this is called the Kusa chiefdom, C-O-O-S-A, Upper Ten Eastern Tennessee, to East Central Alabama. As many as 50,000 people, the chiefdom extended from along the western edge of the Appalachian Mountains for almost 400 miles. And then you have this period of upheaval, and now you have Europeans begin to arrive. In 1501 in Africa, the Spanish king allows introduction of a, in, enslaved 
Africans to the Spanish American colonies. You have Catholic king, African kings, Alfonso the first, the first Catholic king of the Congo. Fifteen eighteen, King Charles I of Spain grants license for slavery. Fifteen twenty one, just three years after that, Santo Domingo slave revolt. As soon as as soon as it starts, it's being torn down. You know, uh, maroon societies are forming. And fifteen twenty six. San Miguel de Guadapi, which is now in Georgia, they bring along, um, this is a Spanish expedition, they bring along Africans. I've read both that they were enslaved or they were becoming enslaved, basically. But these Africans, these people, basically escape slash kick out the people who brought them there. And they come to live with the the people who were living there. So very early on, you have African people being brought here and entering into the culture and society of who will become the Creek people. And uh, in, in, in 1542, the Spanish crown banned the practice of indigenous slavery entirely. So what does this mean? It means it was in Indian slavery from the very beginning. And we don't actually learn about this. So this is one of those points where it's like fundamental. We just, nobody really learns that this is 1542. They're banning the practice. <laughs> so it's been in place for 50 years. The first slaves brought um, across the Atlantic came from on Columbus ship back to Spain, to Europe. A whole line of history of Native Americans indigenous Americans living in Europe in a domestic servitude, but also in working in fields there, trying to cultivate the fields. Okay, and then the last bit from the Spanish, and then we'll come back at some point to it. De Soto, he brought Africans, he's Spanish explorer, 1565. Well, he first arrived 1530, excuse me. And, you know, De Soto comes through and visits all of these places and brings disease. So this society in upheaval then needs to deal with diseases they have dealt with, right? So now you've got a real chaos among the peoples. Okay, so we're going to move out of the geography of the South and we're going to move north because we have to understand something. And then we're going to get into what this has to do with the Greeks. The Iroquois people, many people are familiar with the peacemaker, the great law of peace, the Iroquois confederacy, the Haudenosaunee people, people of the longhouse. Uh, very important. And they also had the war kettle. They were, they were actually like the bully on the block. The Iroquois confederacy, part of the beauty of the confederacy is it bound together weaker and stronger tribes to balance out the, the impulse of the stronger tribes to just dominate everyone. But the result is that 
when the Europeans arrive in the north, the Dutch are there, the French are there later, the Dutch arrive, they're bringing guns. And they bring guns and they give the guns and they say, you can only pay for this with people. And so the Iroquois people who already are willing to go and fight their neighbors, because they, they're human beings, it's not all like everyone sitting kumbaya, they now have this weapon of this gun. And they are kidnapping people to trade for the debt that they incurred to get the gun, to sell them to these, these people. But they don't understand that what they're selling them into is something much worse than they ever knew existed. And so now you have internally within the peoples living here this violence that's, that we're still living with today starts to interact. And so it becomes first uh, a matter of mm, economy and it becomes in some, for some people within the tribes, a way of life, that you have Iroquois, Indian, slave raiders, people who are going into other tribes just to take people to go sell them. And as a result, these, you have a migration movement of the chaos starts to come. The cha we already described the chaos that was taking place in the South. Now you have this chaos and violence that starts to come from Canada down to Virginia and now I'm coming back to the creeks because what happens is the creeks get split into part of the creeks do not want to adopt this slavery thing and some of them say we the only way we're going to survive is if we assimilate our, our ways and so you have Indians participating in slavery and this is what we discovered, my, my wife and I, when we learned of the Mims Plantation. So I didn't cover the whole history because I want to come back to, the, to this point. That the Mims Plantation involves the Upper Creek people and the Lower Creek people. The, the Upper Creek goes up to like how far up into like the Midwest area? No, it's or, still, we're still in like Alabama among these people. It's, it's, we're in this local, old, okay. right, maybe up to into like Tennessee. And by the way, the Iroquois are up, we're up in like the Michigan upper areas of the uh, state. More northeast, they're in like New York, Canada, like this. And the Upper Creek people do not adopt European slavery. The Lower Creeks are participating in it. And the reason this is important is because when the five nations are moved, we have all heard of the Trail of Tears. The Cherokee people are part of the five nations, so they're related to this creek story. They are displaced from their land. They are moved to Oklahoma, Indian Territory. Well, the thing is that Indian Territory, when they're moved there, there is no state of Oklahoma, but there are other native people living on that land, right? and the Cherokee and the Creek are being given this land. And so now they're in the middle again. They're displacing Indian, they, they're losing their land, so they want their land, they want a place, and when they arrive there, they're taking somebody else's land. 
and this in a way is kind of what how colonialism has been working like this is part of the historical process we we don't really understand that the divide and conquer kind of thing but you've been asking about how is it legally bound right how does it appear then legally these things and um the Dawes Act allotment, acts of Congress passed to initiate these forces, the residential schools. That's all of that was, residential schools were funded by the government. So of course the Congress discussed it, right? The Dawes Act is how many um, indigenous Americans got reclassified as black people, as Negro people, as formerly enslaved people. And many of these aspects of, I've given a very brief kind of like, try to just walk through something, right? There's, through the flow and the conversation, we have to unpack some things. But, but the, the purpose of me sharing this right now is really to share a personal experience of how studying about your history, your past, can lead you to uncovering uh, history that it's not that um well and then it calls into this question where we started of the malleability of history that we learned and, and then there's like four or five amazing books i've read since i learned this that of people they wrote these books now you know they just came out in the last year these books that are exactly about what my wife and i are trying to make sense of and so now you're in a uh, dialogue with other people who are thinking about these same things. And it allows you to begin to think about the world differently. And the real thing I'm trying to underscore is the only reason we came about this knowledge is because we were trying to understand our own personal family history. And when, when this name Mims Plantation came up, it took about 10 minutes to like uncover a huge part of the story. And then you got to do the work, you read the books and watch the doc, you know, lectures like to, but it's something that we've been talking about, right? Kind of like, how do you connect it? So you move beyond just the personal family stories. Really, if you're doing ancestry work just for yourself, it's a kind of um, narcissism. <laughs> That's why, I mean, I think it can be like, I think a lot of the ancestry testing, it's like, it's like you, you, you got some piece of information Right, just like I got a piece of information of Min Plantation, but the information that you get, like when you when you when you can find a place on Earth and time, can open you up to a whole other world of what happened. And so, for my for my wife, one of the things that she's been able to integrate out of this is that I'm on my land, and this psychology of. Uh. I was, I was just, I was going to keep going until <laughs> <laughs> we got something. Because that's what, it, that's what it's been, right? It's been like this real psych, fundamental psychological shift of liberation. Like no longer being so enslaved in this way of the enslavement of all of my, every, all my ancestors were enslaved. Well, actually, no, I got now a whole history of the, how long my people have been here. And it brings other trauma. I was like, oh, then this land was stolen right from under our feet. <laughs> but it also brings this 
humility of, well, I have ancestors who enslaved people too. And so now you're really getting more like to the heart of the matter, right? Of this reality that we've got the oppressor and we got the liberator inside of us. And our ancestors made choices to both of those ends. And we, have, we can make a choice to that end also, to participate in the liberation of ourselves and all life, or to continue to oppress it, because that's the state of the world. That's the choice we're given in this world. So there's more, there's more details about the aspects of how this participation in the slave trade took place. There's the discrimination of slavery, different types of slavery. Remember we talked about mm-hmm. when we use that word, a certain picture forms in our mind immediately. But the... the, the it forms in the mind of uh, cattle slavery, but there's a chattel slavery. Chattel slavery. But there's much other type of forms of slavery that were not necessarily brutal, but more indentured servitude. Yeah, it's like, it's like a way to say... Uh, it's not to say there's an acceptable form of slavery, but there's an understanding that it's something existed in human activity that became like chattel slavery is like a toxic mimic yeah. of something that existed. So before we can say anything about it, we have to at least understand what, what was that about? This thing, kinship slavery. Kinship? Well, these are terms that we can actually, because it has to do with what humans were doing on earth for 200,000 years, 300,000 years, right? So for much longer than the last 500, right? So to change our time perspective on the matter also. And so that's also what came out of this personal exploration, right? Is, oh, like I'm talking about the Mississippian culture from 1000 AD, but if you if your identity is framed by the mainstream historical telling and you happen to be a, a black person, your your history goes back five hundred years in a dead end. So even just this like understanding, oh well, well who were those Creek people? You you're gonna go back in time. And you're gonna expand your own definition of yourself, your own identity of yourself. You know, one of the one of the the tribes of of Florida that's important in this whole story is called the 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 Yamasi people, the tribe Y A M A S E E. Well, coincidentally, that was the name uh, that uh, the group I told you, an ex girlfriend was a part of. That was the name they took upon themselves as the Yamasi Native Americans in Georgia. So the Yamasi are the the. The Yamasee War of 1715 is against the, um, it's in Georgia, against the English. So we've jumped in history. The Spanish have kind of left the scene. And the English are beginning the process of codifying into law the practices of Spanish that the Spanish and the Portuguese create. So two big historical kind of processes. The Spanish and Portuguese arrive. They start all this stuff in many ways. The British primarily here come and they codify all of it. They put it into law throughout the Caribbean, throughout the Americas like this. And the Yamases are um, fighting the English and they're fighting 
the slave trade that has is corrupting Indian society. They're part of this group of Indians saying, no, this is not okay. And they beat back the British enough that even though uh, Indian slavery continues, the English begin bringing many more Africans. they like, we're not going to deal with these. You know, it's much harder to steal uh, and successfully like take land when the people who are living there know the seasonal patterns, know what grows, know the animal behavior. And so before the inter-Atlantic, the transatlantic slave trade, you have the inter-intra-America slave trade. For about 200 years, you have Indians from what's now New York. They, they keep rebelling. They keep fighting us. We're going to send them to the islands. So they get the Indians from New York get sent to the Caribbean. The Indians from Guatemala get sent to Louisiana. Right? The Indians from, they, they start moving them around and they're wiping them out. And so the transatlantic slave trade follows because they need people. They, they wipe them out. We know, we, we're told this, right? We're told that we wipe them out, but then you have to reckon that with, we're talking about the Supreme Court. So we didn't wipe, nobody got wiped out. I mean, there are tribes, individual tribes, but as a people, as a culture, something remains. And I had to say those things because when we're talking about this ugly history, it's easy to forget that we need to have a consciousness of hope through the whole thing. And we have to believe that all of this happened and we're going to come out of it with... Uh, still surviving and so it's important to remember that all of this stuff that happened it didn't work it really didn't work there's still uh, languages being spoken that didn't go extinct there's still cultural practices in place and there are many many people who know that their ancestors are on the wrong side of history and we have to find a way to bring ourselves together reconciling our own past. I can't reconcile your past, whether it was tragic or it was glorious, you know. That's its own burden, really, to come from a... At the, now we know if you come from a place of great wealth, yeah. you got a lot to reckon <laughs> with. <laughs> well, if you could summarize, um, what was just the major themes that you just hit today? Yeah, so, so one of the, like, um, homework assignments I have is when I was in seventh grade, my excellent uh, teacher, Ru Rufus, uh, he's traveled to every country in the world. Uh, he's a retired teacher now. But he had this technique to get us. I, when I was in seventh grade, I could uh, write every the name of every country in the world on a map because he taught us how to do it. and He had this kind of system of teaching with it where by the end of it, you wouldn't have a list. We would use a list to learn, but then eventually give you a map of Africa, you name, because you got a pattern. And so now I've realized, well, can I actually, it wasn't just like um, the Yamasee. There were hundreds, hundreds of different tribal identities in what's now Florida and what's now Georgia. So I mentioned the Piscataway people here. So one homework assignment I've kind of it's floating around for myself, maybe for you, for I Georgia. I did too, yeah, and it helped land me. So. Is, like, can I um, do the research, do the work, to get a map of Maryland, where I live now, and be able to name 
not just the Piscataway because that's kind of the name, but take the time to learn 10 tribes that maybe they didn't, maybe they ended up leaving, maybe they ended up joining another group, but like, we're going to talk about we're on somebody else's land. Let's take the time to actually learn it. So that's one thing that, that's kind of come for me. Um, but 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 the other is really like, it's really important that we, um, like we talked a little bit last time about the like, our relationship with the news and the world like this. Like, maybe it's more about discernment of what we're taking the news in, but like, learning about these Supreme Court cases affecting tribal sovereignty right now. Like, I'm really glad that I've taken the time, that one, I was exposed to it, and that then I took the time to to read and learn about what's going on with um, not only this Indian Child Welfare Act, but also, you know, political prisoners, native, but also what's going on globally, many, many political prisoners. Um, and then I say the, the kind of last aspect of it is that I have, I've, I really think the story of the five nations, of the, the, the Creek people, the Cherokee, the Chickasaw, the Choctaw, the Seminole, I, I've come to, you know, I think it's a really fundamental part of the history of this land. We've, we, we, we need to learn. And I can't really say why I feel so clear about that. But I really like, I, I do think that as I learn more about it, it's going to give some insight into how we can, uh, like how this place can survive. Because I, I mean, I think like, given what's going on and the, the, the tensions in this country and the pulling apart of this country, like, it's like everyone's looking for some kind of coherence. And that's why the fear is so easy to stoke because there's all this dissonance. And like the idea, the Sankofa idea of like reaching back it's like we have to reach back where we are like because we have to somehow reconcile with what happened here not in not in some uh nebulous way like very concrete like that and I appreciate like you keep asking about the like the legal acts like because that's a, that's what it's really about like those things need to change. If it's codified in law, it's codified in the law. Now, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not a politician either, but that's where my mind's been going, actually. It's like, what is the... How can things be rewritten? The past is malleable, huh? Mm -hmm. that, it, when, you, when a law changes, the history of that, that, of that law is different now. So I don't know how coherent that was. You know, trying to... Find the words as you're asking. Well, to, to, to add to yeah, another please. piece of there that, that's fine, everyone's looking for coherence. I'm definitely going to take up your the homework assignment of you know can can one map uh, Native American Native tribes and where they were would be present day because uh, to me that kind of feels like that's the coherent the one road to coherence is don't think of uh, one tribe two tribes think of 
all of them you can even come across to in readings. So you can get a broader, even perspective of impact when it hits you, of how you look at the entire map that you're looking at, on a, you know, that you're normally used to. Just look at it in a different way. Don't look at it as, a, you know, particularly Alabama or, or whatever the names are present day. Just see what they are, the names of the past, because that's what we're standing on right now. And in a way, that's just kind of a perspective change. So you can get a perspective of what the world look like with just different names you know don't think of Georgians and Marylanders or whatever they call the Washingtonians look at the names that were there throughout the whole country <laughs> you know just to see a broader perspective of a whole reality so um, you know I, f I feel like that's one way to coherence just to see put all the pieces together you know it, it, it kind of brings a conversation from this morning like I hadn't been thinking about this until you just said that but it calls forth my own desire to know ancestral family language I speak English I don't understand Hindi and or Sanskrit or any Urdu any language thousands of languages there and it it is something that you know you learn a language you have a different uh, worldview mm -hmm. right way to look at the world and so, I guess to your point of the the names of the places and people, but then of our my own, I, I know the language that I don't know, right? And um, I guess being reminded that there's a lot of uh, self knowledge in store with that study, if I'm able to start having even small words in Hindi to be able to pass that to my children, maybe then they'll know the whole vocabulary, mm. right? So maybe even just being able to see that in this ancestry is not just about those who came before, but those who are already now walking with us to continue the line of it. And the language is stopped in my generation. Yeah, like in my, my parents spoke Hindi, and my brothers and I, none of us do. And so, won't pass unless I do something maybe I plant some seeds mm.